Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working to eliminate cancer as a cause of death. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about men's health with Dr. Daniel Kellner. Dr. Kellner is an assistant professor of clinical urology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgery. Dan, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Okay, well, so I'm a general urologist. Uh, I do focus a lot on men's health issues. Uh, men's health issues are prostate issues. Uh, prostate cancer is one of the big things that we, we deal with. Uh, BPH is another thing. That's a non-cancerous growth of prostate tissue. Uh, men's health deals a lot with sexual function, so erectile dysfunction, problems with fertility, um, problems with testicular pain, testicular cancer. So men's health is anything that's kind of unique to men. So kind of really broad. So what's the most common uh, complaints that men come in with? And um, tell us a little bit more about kind of the spectrum. So probably the things that men come in with usually are urinary symptoms. Uh, what really bothers men is getting up at night to urinate. That That's the thing they focus on the most. And then as you talk to men about their symptoms, you find that they have a lot of urgency to urinate, slow stream, and then you start to realize it actually affects them. Like they're maybe at a meeting and they'll dehydrate before the meeting because they're afraid they'll have to run to the bathroom and they're afraid that's going to happen or they really don't want to go out. I mean, it could be pretty severe. They don't want to go shopping with their significant other because they're afraid they're not going to get to a bathroom on time. Mm -hmm. So you start to really kind of realize that these urinary symptoms really affect the quality of life, and, and it happens so gradually sometimes that men simply just accept it as part of aging, mm -hmm. not realizing that it's actually something that is really affecting them, and, and it's very treatable. And so what I'm really talking about is, is enlargement of the prostate, what we call BPH. And so so I guess the first thing that that we need to say is if you're having these symptoms, uh, it's not just... I'm getting older, it's part of life, but something that they should really see their doctor about. Definitely they should see their doctor because it, they don't have to accept these urinary symptoms. And sometimes it's kind of a signal that something else might be happening that's even more dangerous. So if a man is having a lot of difficulty urinating, he could actually be developing something called urinary retention where his bladder is getting larger and larger. It's filling up. And, it, and over time, it's possible that the bladder won't be able to empty anymore. And that's a situation where someone would even have to have a catheter or catheterize himself. Uh, they can be prone to urinary tract infections, uh, prone to bladder stones. Uh, the worst case scenario is that pressure over time builds up. It actually backs up to the kidneys and can develop kidney failure. So these are not just urinary symptoms that are inconvenience and quality of life. These are real health issues. Yeah, because I know a lot of guys um, will likely say, you know what, yeah, this is something. I'm going to just live with it. It's nothing. But but what you're saying is, you know, don't kind of take that, quote, macho uh, kind of role of this is nothing. I can handle it, whatever. But that these could really lead to some serious health problems. See your doctor. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they should talk to their doctor about it, you know, or if they have a urologist, realize that the urologist uh, can help them with these problems. And it's interesting. Men, th th they deal with this all the time. And sometimes it's it's something that's almost humorous to them. Like some men will say, you know, when I play golf, I know 
everywhere on the golf course where I could where I where I urinate. <laughs> okay, so th- th- they have and they talk about it with their friends, and it's something that is so common. And as men get treated, they say, you know what, I I'm going to tell my friend about you yeah. because they're really happy. And as a urologist, actually, one of my favorite things to treat is BPH and large prostate because when you go from not being able to urinate to be able to urinate. You've made a friend. Yeah. You know, you, you're really helping someone's quality of life. And you, you, it's almost immediate, the, the satisfaction you gain as a physician, you know, versus treating some sort of chronic problem where you don't know for 20 or 30 years if you made a difference. Something with urine, not being able to urinate and then you could urinate, you, you get some instant gratitude. It's, it's very good. So, so let's suppose a guy presents to you and says, you know what? I really, I've been having troubles urinating. I get up in the middle of the night. I have this sense of urgency. I don't really have a good stream. They come to you. What kind of is the process that you go through to determine what's going on and ultimately reaching a diagnosis and fixing it? Mm-hmm. So when people come and they start to, to tell us some of the symptoms they're having, you know, we'll, we'll elicit more history. You know, with anything in medicine, first thing is just get more information. Get a history on the patient. How long has this been happening Start to kind of direct them a little bit of, of things like what's your flow like? Does it take a while to get started? Does it start and stop? Do you have urgency? Do you have frequency? Do you ever have accidents where you wet yourself? Do you wake up and you're, and you're wet with urine? How long has this been happening? Uh, and then you look through their medications. Uh, you look at other surgeries they may have had. And then you get into family history. A lot of times patients, men, will have a history that their father had problems with their prostate. Um, Beyond that, then we start to think about things like physical exam. So we can examine a man's prostate with the digital rectal exam. It gives you a sense of uh, the size of the prostate. Now, one thing that a lot of physicians don't realize, it's not the size of the prostate. Even a small prostate can create very, very obstructive symptoms. Mm. So sometimes it's the shape of the prostate. When men have enlargement of the prostate, it's not just an outward growth. It's inward growth, and it obstructs the channel. And you can't feel that by doing a rectal exam. Right. So the physical exam is part of it. Um, we look at other things. We, we can measure if a patient is emptying their bladder all the way by doing either a bladder scan or an ultrasound. And you can learn a lot about if the bladder has, has some changes in it. The bladder wall could start to get thicker. Uh, it could start to have this irregular appearance we call trabeculations, almost like extra muscles that are forming in the bladder. And the bladder may start to retain urine. So it's, it's just simply not emptying. Um, so that, that's a nice way to be able to really identify how advanced the situation is. And then there's a scale we use. It's called the International Prostate Symptom Score, and it's seven questions that are scored. And it'll basically categorize someone if they have either mild, moderate, or severe symptoms. And that may kind of steer us on how urgent the situation is. And then you could really tailor treatment to a patient based on their severity, um, other problems they're having, their, their overall feeling about um, how they want to address the issue. A lot of it does not come down to quality of life. And if it's really affecting quality of life, that is more reason to move forward and do something. Uh, we usually start with medication. There are certainly medicines that, that work. Uh, but beyond medication, when they're not working, or if someone has intolerance to medicine or side effects from medicine or cost is an issue with medicine, uh, there are a lot of procedures that are available. And now we have procedures that are actually available in the office mm. without anesthesia, which really help people. And then there's more aggressive procedures that are done in the operating room, which are very, very effective to help people urinate better.
So let's talk a little bit about that. So, so if you have kind of mild cases, you start with medications. One of the things that you said, though, which was interesting to me, was if the cost of the medication is an issue, you might move to a procedure. So how expensive are these medications? And is that often an issue for men where the procedure is actually going to be more cost effective than the medication? Right. So, I, you know, I, I think you'd really have to kind of analyze it over, the, you know, someone's lifetime, how much medication costs. Yeah. Uh, but certainly that is something that certainly bothers people. Um, but more sometimes people just don't want to have to take a medication. Right. Um, a lot of the medicines that are specific for prostate have side effects. All right. And I don't want to um, get too much into the talk of medicine, but there are sexual side effects that happen with certain medicines, some blood pressure issues that happen with certain medications. And so what happens is people, they'll take the medicine, but sometimes they just don't want to have to stay on it. Mm -hmm. And so you just have to say, well, there's other options. You don't have to necessarily stay on medicine. And now, if you, are, if you have a patient who's taking medicine and they're seeing really good results and they have no side effects and they're really opposed to any procedures, it makes sense to stay on medication. If medicine is just not working that well and they don't want to take medicine and they're having sexual side effects, then it's really time to think about other procedures because in general, the procedures are more effective in helping these symptoms but with anything that's more effective, there also could be a little bit more risk. And so risk tolerance is also one of the issues. You know, how much risk do you want to take? I mean, you get more bang for your buck. Mm -hmm. So this, the second kind of level up from medications are these in-office procedures. And I have to say, you're going to have to tell me more about these in-office procedures because I remember back in the day, we used to talk about medicines and then we used to talk about TERPs, which is kind of a transurethral resection of the prostate where, you know, the urologist would go in there and ream out the prostate. But that was really done in the operating room. But now you're kind of talking about... Um, procedures that can be done in the office that allow people to have symptom relief. Tell us more about those. Yeah, so, so one of the uh, procedures that, uh, that we're doing uh, is actually a procedure called the Eurolift procedure. And that's a procedure where you're not cutting tissue, burning tissue, destroying tissue uh, like you do with a, a TURP or TURP. Uh, what you're doing is you're simply moving tissue. Uh, it's a special device that it puts little implants in the prostate. It moves the tissue physically out of the way and your men will urinate better. Uh, it's something so that it kind of like pulls it away from the, the urethra. From the urethra. It's, it's almost like taking uh, hmm. curtain pins and pushing curtains out of the way. And patients recover very quickly within anywhere from a day to maybe a week. Uh, they may have some irritation from the actual procedure, but they will report better urinary flow, less urgency, less frequency. Many times the goal is to get them off of medication. And with this procedure, there are absolutely no sexual side effects. And we have good long-term follow-up that shows at five years, there's a low retreatment rate. And it doesn't burn any bridges. If that procedure uh, over time is not working as well as it did initially, you can go on to do a number of uh, procedures on the prostate. You haven't burned any bridges. Now, with this procedure, it is done in the office. We do it with a local anesthetic. Patients go home the same day, usually without a catheter. And uh, within a few days, we see them and they start to have improvement already. Uh, it's actually covered by almost every insurance in our state. Wow. Okay, that sounds pretty good. You mentioned procedures in office. Is, are there others that people have choices to decide between? Yes, there are. I mean, so this this is kind of like this resurgence of treating people with BPH. Uh, there's another procedure uh, where you actually uh, put energy into the prostate in the form of steam. Uh, and what that does is it actually 
destroys the prostate tissue, and over time, the prostate will remodel, it'll reabsorb the injured tissue, and it'll open up the channel. So it's not as instantaneous as the Urolift. It's something that you do a treatment. Uh, it does take probably several weeks before you start to see benefit. But again, this is something that usually can be done in the office. It's a little bit more comfortable than the Urolift. Um, and then there's, there, there are some other things that are you know, basically coming down the pike. Some of it's not covered by insurance, but it's a time where people want minimally invasive treatments because what they want is they want something effective. They want something that is not going to put them out of commission for a long time. They don't want to deal with side effects. And a lot of these things um, are becoming very exciting. I mean, this is a, you know, we have a very large population of patients that's developing with BPH. All the baby boomers have gotten to an age where we have a lot of large prostates and people who have trouble urinating. And so there, there's a lot of People who are, even outside of medicine, engineers who actually get involved in these things and help design these new technologies. Yeah. Can you tell us about some of the things coming down the pike? So there's something that uh, exists now. Um, it's a basically in, like an aqua jet. It's like a water pick that kind of is able to go through the tissue and open it up almost like robotic uh, procedure. Uh, that would be done under an anesthetic. But once you've set up the, the device and the machine, it basically opens up the tissue. That's called the aqua beam. Uh, and there's, there's, there are a bunch of other things that are certainly in the works. Now, the tried and true surgery, which sounds awful, but it's not, is still considered a TURP. Okay. And that stands for transurethral resection of prostate. Now, that procedure is done through the urethra where you scrape the tissue away. And patients are usually in the hospital overnight, but that does give you the best outcomes. Yeah. So it sounds like there's still the tried and true, but there's a lot of interesting stuff going on that might be a little less invasive and potentially equally effective. We're going to take a short break for a medical minute and come back to learn more about men's health with my guest, Dr. Dan Kellner. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, providing important treatment options for various types and stages of cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about breast cancer, the most common cancer in women. In Connecticut alone, approximately 3,000 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year. But thanks to earlier detection, non-invasive treatments, and novel therapies, there are more options for patients to fight breast cancer than ever before. Women should schedule a baseline mammogram beginning at age 40 or earlier if they have risk factors associated with breast cancer. Digital breast tomosynthesis, or 3D mammography, is transforming breast screening by significantly reducing unnecessary procedures while picking up more cancers and eliminating some of the fear and anxiety many women experience. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I am joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Dan Kellner. We're talking about men's health today, and I think one of the big points that was made before the break was how important it is for you men out there who are having urinary symptoms. You have frequency or urgency, or you're waking up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, or you can't go, or your stream's not good, and you think, ah, well, you know, it's part of life. I'm getting old 
older, this is just one of those things, I'll deal with it. How important it is to go and see your doctor or a urologist and get it checked out because not checking it out can not only make those symptoms be there so that it lowers your quality of life, but it can also lead to all kinds of problems with urinary retention and infections. And you really don't need that. We were talking right before the break about how there's really been an explosion of innovative technologies, some of which are really minimally invasive, that can really do a good job in helping urinary retention from BPH or benign prostatic hypertrophy, that enlargement of the prostate that is often caused uh, for all of these uh, symptoms that men face. So, Dan, you were saying that beyond medication, there are these intraoperative or these intra-office, sorry, intra-office procedures uh, that we can do, but the gold standard remains the TERP, the scraping out of the prostate done in the operating room. But I wonder if there are other technologies that you're using now also in the operating room that might be better or different or have other advantages over the tried and true CHIRP. Yeah, so so there is actually. Uh, there's a procedure we do now. It's called the HOLEP, which stands for Holmium Laser Enucleation of the Prostate. And this is a very exciting procedure because what it's doing is you're using laser energy to enucleate the prostate. Now, just to give you a picture of what this is like, picture the prostate as an orange. And a man has to basically urinate through a thin drinking straw that's in the middle of that orange. And as that orange pulp expands, it presses on that drinking straw. And when you do a terp, you're in the middle of that drinking straw trying to scrape away and create a larger, larger basically path for that straw to go through. Well, with the whole up, what you do is you're getting into that orange and you're getting right between the pulp and the peel. Now, you know there's not a lot of juice between the pulp and the peel, and that's the same with the prostate. You get into a certain plane between what's called the adenoma, that's the area that's obstructing, and the outside of the prostate, which is the surgical capsule, that's the peel, and you could move all of this orange pulp out of the prostate, and there's a lot less bleeding because what happens is you encounter the major blood vessels that feed the prostate, and you could directly control them with a laser. And then all that tissue that it's obstructing gets moved into the bladder where it's free-floating. Now, you don't have to make any incisions to take that tissue out. We have a special device called a morselator, which goes through our instrument, and it basically cuts and, and sucks the tissue out of the bladder. So you are able to have a complete removal of the inside of the prostate without any incisions. Now, historically, the only way to do that was to do something called a simple prostatectomy, which is somewhat of a morbid procedure. Now, to do that surgery, you have to make an incision through the lower part of the abdomen, make an incision into the bladder, take your finger, push it down into the prostate, and scoop out the inside of the prostate. Mm. Patients are in the hospital for probably anywhere five days to a week. They have catheters uh, draining them, irrigating them. With this procedure, you are doing the equivalent of that procedure without any incisions. There's minimal bleeding. Patients are often going home the next day, and now there's a move to actually possibly sending patients home the same day, and they have a catheter overnight, and it's amazing how good the outcomes are after these surgeries. So how, I mean, when you compare that to the tried and true TERP, um, I mean, with a TERP, people go home the same day or the next day too, right? So patients will often stay overnight with a TERP. Now, the TERP, you are limited by the patient's, by the prostate size. So with the TERP, you could do prostates, so a normal prostate's, say, the size of a walnut. You could do prostates up to maybe the size of 
five walnuts, okay, up to about what we call 100 grams, okay, with a terp. But when it gets too big, it's very difficult to remove enough tissue with a terp. There tends to be a lot of bleeding, and it takes quite a while. Now, with the whole lep procedure, there's no limitation on size. You can do prostates that are 10 times the size of a normal prostate. Mm -hmm. There really is no limitation. And there is a lot less bleeding than a, T a TRP or TERP. The other thing with a HOLEP is the chance of needing another surgery is almost 0%. The chance of needing another surgery after TERP is probably about 7% in the literature. So the HOLEP is a more complete removal of tissue with less bleeding and so it's something that can be offered for very large prostates, which could not be done with the TERP. People with very large prostates in the past had to have the open, simple prostatectomy. That's the morbid procedure I was trying to describe. And so is it covered by insurance? Oh, yes, it's covered by insurance. Very effective procedure. The other, the other question that I think people have or could have, is, you know, when we talk about all of these urinary symptoms, right, having difficulty going, urgency, frequency, um, difficulty starting and stopping streams and so on, sometimes people worry about prostate cancer as opposed to just simple benign prostatic hypertrophy. How do you tell the difference between the two? And how do you, I mean, because is a whole lep or terp good enough for prostate cancer? So, no. So what we're describing are treatments for BPH, which is benign prostatic hyperplasia. That's benign growth of prostate tissue, which men are often symptomatic from. With prostate cancer, there's usually no symptoms. Uh, the way we find prostate cancer is typically through PSA testing, which is a blood test which is often done by the primary care doctor or through a urologist, usually once a year. And the PSA may be the earliest way to find prostate cancer. Now, a PSA being elevated doesn't mean there's prostate cancer, but it means that there could be a chance that there is prostate cancer, and so further workup is going to be needed. Now, also a digital rectal exam is important because there are times where you can feel a nodule or a firm area in the prostate, and that could be a sign of prostate cancer. Now, it is possible to have prostate cancer with a normal PSA, and it's possible that prostate cancer, even if you don't feel a nodule. So there has to be some suspicion that starts to develop. You know, family history may kind of clue you in. If there's a first-degree relative who has prostate cancer, that would be another reason maybe you have to be suspicious. Or if you see a normal PSA, but it's just trending upward, even if it's in the normal range, but it keeps going up, that could be a sign of possible prostate cancer. And ultimately what it comes down to is the only way to diagnose prostate cancer is to do a prostate biopsy. And so that's something that is, we're, we, we, it's, a, it's really a relationship between the urologist and his patient about where are we with your PSA? Where are we with your rectal exam? Has there, is there enough suspicion? Do we have to go after the biopsy and see what's going on? Now, there are times when we do a surgery like a TRP or a HOLEP and all of that tissue gets sent to the laboratory. We sometimes do find prostate cancer with these procedures, and patients at times will even need treatment of that prostate cancer. But with prostate cancer, there are, there are many, many, many ways to approach the actual treatment of prostate cancer if you are diagnosed with it. And it really comes down to what kind of prostate cancer do you have? Is it kind of indolent, slow-growing prostate cancer, which is never going to cause problems? Or is it really, really aggressive prostate cancer that really needs to be treated? And if you don't do something, there's a chance that's going to cause problems. So I, I want to just kind of pause for a second, because if prostate cancer doesn't cause symptoms 
And oftentimes this is picked up on a PSA test that's done by your family doctor. But a lot of times people are saying that their screening tests are not including a PSA because that's been controversial as to the benefit of PSA. So should men be getting PSA tests? And if so, starting at what age and how frequently? So there's there's been a lot of debate and controversy over PSA as a screening test. Yeah. A number of years ago, the U.S. Preventive Task Force had given prostate cancer screen with a PSA a D, a D rating. And at that point, there was a lot of confusion amongst primary care doctors. You know, they didn't know if they should do PSA testing or right. not do it. The American Urologic Association has always felt that PSA testing should be done uh, on, a, on a regular basis. Now, the U.S. Preventive Task Force re-looked at the data and basically made an addendum where they basically said that the decision to test PSA uh, for screening is a decision that should be made between the physician and their patient. And the American Neurologic Association recommends that a man between starting at the age of 55 to the age of 70 should have their PSA tested once a year. Now, if someone has a strong family history of prostate cancer or increased risk, so if they're African-American or African-Caribbean, they should consider maybe earlier PSA testing. So right now, the way things stand, it is recommended that men should have PSA testing. Again, there has to be conversations that happen. I wouldn't want to just sneak a PSA test in on a man and without, without having some sort of understanding of what are we trying to do? Do you believe in screening? Do you want to be detected early? Because if you find prostate cancer at an earlier stage, you have better options. You're, there's better ways to that you could approach it and handle it. And the fact is... If you're diagnosed with prostate cancer, we have a large move towards doing what's called active surveillance. We are watching probably half the patients that are diagnosed with prostate cancer, and they don't need treatment. So not everyone who's diagnosed with prostate cancer needs to have treatment. So moving on from different treatments, there are surgeries that could be done. There's radiation that could be done. It, it gets quite extensive. Any patient of mine who's diagnosed with prostate cancer, I usually set them up for a meeting with me at the very end of the day because we never know exactly how long that conversation is going to go. But it, you need to really spend a lot of time to talk about all the ins and outs of prostate cancer. All right. But at a minimum, I think the, the big clarifying point, um, for me at least, is, is that men starting at the age of 55, should get an annual PSA because I know that that's been really controversial and there are a lot of guys out there who are like, you know what, now PSA really shouldn't be done uh, and so my doctor's not doing it because they say that it really is of limited value. And I think part of that might be related to the fact that some prostate cancers, as you say, are quite indolent and do not require treatment. And so this concept of why do I need to find it early if it's going to be indolent and there's this whole question about whether PSA testing is really going to be valid because you can have prostate cancer even with a normal PSA, should we bother doing it? I think what you've clarified for us is you think that there is still value in annual PSA screening regardless. Yes, I, I do think there's value in it. You know, I think what's important is that a urologist does not have a knee-jerk reaction to one elevated PSA. It shouldn't be that a PSA is elevated and suddenly you're scheduling the patient for a biopsy. I think it's important that you slow down, 
that you do another PSA maybe after a few weeks or a few months. You, you tell the patient, let's not do anything that's going to falsely raise the PSA. It's probably a good idea to abstain from sexual activity before having a PSA. You don't want to do a digital rectal exam and then send the patient down the hall to have their PSA checked right after your appointment. Uh, theoretically, maybe a long bike ride could, could create an elevated PSA. I mean, there's a lot of things that maybe make false positive uh, inflation of the PSA. So you would check another PSA. If the PSA is still elevated, then it's time to think about doing a biopsy. And again, this is it takes a lot of time. You need to have conversations, and you really want to approach this as a team approach on how you're going to basically screen and diagnose prostate cancer. So, Dan, if people don't have a PSA done on a regular basis and they can't look at these trends and so on and so forth, what are the presenting, how would people find out that they have prostate cancer if prostate cancer doesn't present with symptoms and they don't have their PSA checked? How would they ever know that they have prostate cancer? So, you know, historically before they did PSA screening, people would present with advanced prostate cancer. So advanced prostate cancer could be pain in the bones. It could be, it could be prostate cancer that's grown in the spine where they're having trouble uh, walking or they're having trouble urinating or having bowel movements because the cancer is actually so advanced. We don't see a lot of patients who present with that very, very, very advanced prostate cancer anymore because of prostate cancer screening. Now, more advanced prostate cancer sometimes has some maybe subtle symptoms. Uh, With more advanced prostate cancer, people sometimes describe some urgency or frequency to urinate, or maybe some blood in the urine, but the vast majority of patients have no symptoms of prostate cancer. Dr. Daniel Kellner is an assistant professor of clinical urology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.